Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today we'll be talking to Stephen Alvarez about his book, Community Literacies and Convianza, Learning from Bilingual After-School Programs. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Trevor. Steve, I'm wondering if we can start our interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking me. And again, thank you for having me here. Uh, well, I guess to begin, go way back, I'm, I'm from uh, Safford, Arizona. It's a small town, uh, well, a rural town in, in southeast Arizona, population around 10,000 folks. So I'm born and raised in Safford and uh, um, 18 years old. I went to the University of Arizona, the first-generation college student, and it was there at the University of Arizona where I really started asking questions about my, my ethnic background, Mexican-American questions about my family's migration history, and a larger question about uh, why I didn't speak Spanish. And that is something that carried over into my uh, research later when I moved to New York City and uh, eventually did my PhD at the City University of New York and really uh, started learning more about my background by becoming bilingual and learning about some of the educational travails that face uh, Mexican, Mexican immigrant families. So uh, really, it's, it's my research is really focused on understanding the social experiences of my family, but also families like mine. And how did you come to write this book, Community Literacies in Confianza? I think the book really came to me. Uh, and I mean that in not, and not in any kind of facetious way, but uh, I, while I was working on this book, I was working on another book, which was uh, uh, the book what I, I really was uh, on the basis of my dissertation. And uh, I think it was the National Council of Teachers of English reached out to me with the possibility of doing this book. And really, I think it was the attention to bilingual students that NCTE was really focused on. And as fortunate would have it, I was living in, in, uh, living in Kentucky, uh, professor at the University of Kentucky at this time, and I was involved with various after-school programs, uh, bilingual after-school programs. So the program is actually profiled in this book. And uh, with, the, with the proposal from NCTE and, and the work as I was already doing with the community, it just seemed like the timing was right and uh, the place was right. And fortunately, the, the, the communities that I was a part of were very much supportive that I do this kind of work. So it was just a whole host of factors that came together in a very fortunate series of events. I know you largely work with college-age students now in addition to your research, but from reading your biography, I see that you've had some experience working with students as young as kindergarten. And something I always want to ask educators we have on our show is what experiences they had as students or as over the course of their career that have shaped their views on education and schooling? How did they come to education? Yeah, I, you know, I reflect on this a lot. And I reflect on this, as I mentioned before, because of my, I guess you would say, my class mobility. Uh, my, my, I'm a, a child of immigrants. 
the first generation to go to college, to become a professor. And uh, my hometown, one thing I, well, the hometown, my hometown of Safford, the, around half the population is, is Mexican-American. And yet in the schools, in any of the classrooms I ever sat in, I never saw a Mexican-American teacher. Um, certainly folks who were staff and uh, worked in cafeterias and maintenance in the school bus, but never somebody who looked like me or came from where I came from in the front of the classroom. And that's something I think later on I started to realize and ask questions. At a young age, the question was, are we not smart enough? Are we not smart enough to be teachers? Maybe there's something wrong with us. And really internalizing that as a personal a personal issue, really, uh, that was made more likely thinking of a personal kind of failure of, of a group that I identified with. Well, as I moved to the university, I really started asking more questions and, and really started turning to some of the structural issues about how racism and, and other forms of oppression and discrimination affected Mexican-American folks, a part of the history that I was never really exposed to growing up. And I think in college, I started asking more of these questions, and a lot of the questions really began to focus on my identity. At the same time, I always did really well in school. And I'm confident to say that the reason why I went to university is because I had a really high GPA going, going all throughout school. Uh, in Arizona, young folks who graduated the top 5% of their class had scholarships to any of the three, three state universities. Uh, my parents didn't have money to send me to college, and I had scholarships. And school was a way for me to really uh, excel and otherwise, uh, well, to exceed expectations that may have been leveled on me despite my knowing. So I would say that uh, school was always a place I felt comfortable in, especially where uh, I had mentors. Uh, mentors who were not always Mexican-American, but people who recognized that I had certain kind of talents for, for storytelling and for reading and for writing. So I think school was always a comfortable place, but it wasn't until I was older that I started asking these questions about uh, ethnicity and race relating to school. And there's still questions I battle with. Are there things that you started thinking about in terms of race and ethnicity, uh, systemic oppression, things like that, that you learned about in college that you wish you could have shared with the people who worked in your schools as a kid? Oh, I think so still now. Um, really, I think it's, uh, how would I put this? I think, well, there's, there's a kind of dilemma that I think first-generation college students have. Mm -hmm. And it's one where as we move further into college, it also distances us from our communities. And the people who matter the most to us, unfortunately, are the ones who are sometimes most alienated by these institutions that we become a part of. Mm. So certainly I had the feeling that as I was getting educated, I was also moving further from my roots. And then this removal also meant that I could never really return to my roots. But more importantly, I think I would say that in regard to schooling, I understood that as I moved further in my education, I then too became a mentor, particularly to those uh, young Latinx students who I saw were the next generation coming up behind me. And I realized that my role was to be that mentor, but also somebody who understood where they came from and who could understand where they come from. So as I moved further in my education, it really started growing out from myself to start asking these questions about ethnicity and race, but also opportunity. What opportunities are structured for whom and how, uh, how we find mentors who really guide us into really thinking about uh, some of these structural issues in a different kind of educational form, uh, sometimes outside of school and oftentimes critiquing schools with young people. 
What does the bilingual student population in our country look like today? I would say it's incredibly diverse, number one, and I think any any teacher at any school anywhere across the country can tell you that. Uh, I would say a good portion of folks, of course, are Spanish speakers. In fact, uh, some of the data in terms of demographics of Spanish speakers, uh, of course, Mexico has the largest population of Spanish speakers in the world, uh, followed by Argentina. And then after that, actually, comes the United States, if we include the people who speak Spanish as a home language and as a, a bilingual language or a second language. So if we actually see that the United States then has more Spanish speakers than Spain. And that's really blows a lot of folks' minds, especially though when you start thinking that the United States and Mexico are linked. Walls are no walls. We're linked, and we're linked linguistically. And I can see that this is a way we can really start to think of bilingual folks across the country as really being um, something that's cultivated for some people. Um, for some people, of course, if English is your home language, learning another language becomes some kind of additive potential that one has. Imagine young folks who are learning French or learning Mandarin. However, for the other folks who speak another language as a home language, that language oftentimes is positioned to be subtracted in order for English to take over. So even though we have a significant bilingual population in this country, there's a lot of monolingual language ideologies which can look at these languages that are not English as deficits. So this is the same old story, I think, that happened uh, throughout the history of this country, going way back even to Benjamin Franklin and the way he looked at German, for example. But I would say that uh, there's more celebration today to honor the linguistic diversity of our students, even despite the standards which oftentimes privilege English over any other language. Being bilingual can mean different things in different contexts. And so uh, people might think one thing if they learn that your native language is Spanish and you're learning English as a second language, as opposed to learning, knowing English and having that be your home language and learning Chinese or Spanish in school as sort of an extracurricular. Is it something you see in other communities, other language diverse countries, or is it something you think that's unique to this English-Spanish dynamic in the United States? I think it relates a lot to uh, elements of nationalism across mm -hmm. the world. Um, well, the, the great scholar Shirley Bryce Heath, very famous for her book, Ways with Words, uh, some of the literacy practices of folks in Appalachia, uh, in Piedmont region, North Carolina. Uh, her first book, though, uh, based on her dissertation work, was looking at language standardization in Mexico, historically. Uh, you can think of this of the colonial conquest of Spanish over indigenous languages and all the efforts to, well, to reduce indigenous languages uh, to create a nation of Spanish speakers. And that's just an example of Mexico. And this is something that happened, of course, in the United States with our history of the way uh, indigenous languages were treated and up to the current dates where we have a kind of uh, English-only ideology which permeates, uh, well, a lot of a lot of uh, frameworks for ways of thinking about who is and what is an American. But certainly I think this is something that's happened historically in different places and different times, especially uh, where immigrants are concerned. That is, the, the pressure for assimilation is something that is not just uniquely American, although you know, maybe because of our, our history of immigration, it's one that's understood as distinctly American, but it's not only American. Uh, but there are different ways of thinking about uh, polyvocality of languages, especially in the European Union, 
however, however, there is still oftentimes a danger that certain languages seem to have more symbolic capital than others. Uh, languages like German or French, languages of some of the wealthier nations, for example. But there's no doubt about it, the, uh, the ideologies of nationalism and language are often very much linked and oftentimes geared towards a kind of monolingual understanding of what is the national language. Do you feel optimistic that people will be more thoughtful of these kinds of considerations in the future than they were in the past? I, well, I'm not sure if hopeful is the right word, fortunately. I, I, I'm hopeful in the sense that there is a more counters to this kind of English-only ideology. But, I mean, we don't really have to look far to see, let's say, on social media, uh, videos of people who who yell at other people in different kind of public contexts to speak English or racialize the way people speak uh, in terms of accents. So I think, if anything, there are more ways where we are cognizant of some of these inequalities and how they also play out through language and ways we think about language ideology. Although certainly I am hopeful, however, that there are uh, schools, schools that are becoming sites of really thinking of dual languages uh, as equal carriers of culture and also carriers of knowledge. So certainly I think there's been a lot of growth in terms of thinking of education of bilingual, bilingual education rather, but I think there's always still room to grow. And, of course, there are certain times when I think we have regressions into thinking of English-only policies. But there's certainly uh, more folks who are bilingual who are becoming educators, and that certainly creates a spark of change. Can you talk a little bit about how these students are learning English? Is it happening in schools mostly, or does it happen through a mix of schools and after-school programs, or maybe even informally at home? I think it's, it depends on the community. It depends on the context. Uh, in, in this book, Community Literacies and Confianza, focusing on uh, Latin American immigrant students in Kentucky. And as soon as I say that, maybe folks might be thinking questions like, oh, there's a Spanish-speaking population in Kentucky. And in fact, yes, there is. In fact, the entire South is experiencing a demographic transition and really an explosion of uh, 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 growth in terms of the, the Latinx demographic. So much so that there is an after-school, uh, well, after-school programs that cater to bilingual students and a bilingual after-school program in a public library, a bilingual public library in Kentucky. So, but your question uh, asking about how students are, are becoming bilingual, there's a whole host of effects, but it really becomes uh, who they're around in the communities and the community context. In the case of Kentucky, students, uh, many of the young folks were speaking Spanish as their home language. And something that was their families, of course, cultivated because that's the language they spoke at home. But there was never any families I met who thought they didn't want their children to learn English. In fact, that was one of their greatest hopes because with English, the young folks were able to not only defend themselves, but also to be able to defend their families, be able to defend their parents. It became a way, really, to think about the symbolic power that English has for immigrant families. Well, that said, many of the young folks, of course, they're exposed to media and they're learning English by watching cartoons and also some of their other family members who may be older who speak English. And really, though, the majority of the work actually happens, as you mentioned, through schools. And however, they, in terms of thinking of reading and writing and general literacy practices, oftentimes it's privileging English and Spanish only exists as an oral language, for example. Mm-hmm. So there is a, a kind of a, a way where the schools, of course, are very involved, 
and thinking of sustaining the home language, but there's also the pressures of assimilation, especially in a place like Kentucky where speaking Spanish in public can be a very stigmatizing thing, depending mm -hmm. on the context. So no doubt about it, I think there's a lot of work that happens in the school, but it really happens in the context of communities and also the way the communities value and prize English bilingualism as a way for them to uh, really to have uh, their lived experience be acknowledged and also to realize that their voice is heard. Your book focuses on after-school programs. Can you talk a, a bit about how bilingual after-school programs can be structured for those who have never seen them in practice? Sure. Well, I, I must admit, these, uh, these two bilingual after-school programs are pretty grassroots. And I say that because uh, really they, they, they exist in places where the English monolingual ideology is very strong and very present. And uh, well, I'll speak a little bit about the two sites. Uh, one, as I call in the book, the uh, Valle del Bluegrass Library. This is the bilingual public library. And uh, the way this library is structured, it's, it is a bilingual library. By that, I don't mean that there is uh, a section of Spanish books segregated from English books. All the books are shelved together, English and Spanish together. And that's actually emblematic and symbolic of the way this, this particular space tries to weave the languages together and celebrate the language together and really offer programming for young folks, for parents, for the entire community in Spanish and English. So at the very uh, basic level, this particular library makes the great emphasis of serving the local community, understanding the context, but also recognizing that a public library should be bilingual to serve a bilingual public. Mm -hmm. So with that, the, uh, the various programs that they offered included things like Spanish story time, bilingual story time, uh, art programs that you know, ask young folks to think about, uh, well, using the arts, but also ways of thinking about music and just ways of celebrating various forms of culture. Uh, through food, for example, through dance, different kind of programs invited the local members of the community who spoke Spanish to be leaders and to offer their wisdom to the local community. So the library, that's one context. And I should say that this is not the kind of library where you walk in and expect to be quiet. Uh, this is a place where, you know, in, in a lovely kind of way, there's children shouting in, in Spanish and English and uh, a lot of just a lot of uh, celebration of, of a local or a local celebration, I would say, especially with, with the Spanish language. Although certainly um, there are issues of sometimes people who would enter the library and, uh, well, not be exactly pleased to see this kind of space existing in Kentucky. But on the other side, I would speak a little bit about the second program I was uh, involved with, and it was a group of high school students. When uh, In this particular high school, uh, it was a regular public high school, However, uh, during after-school hours, the Latino students all got together, and uh, sometimes they also met at the bilingual public library, and this was a place for them, many of the students who met in ESL classes previously and gone to school together, where they could get together and speak Spanish, uh, speak about the issues they faced, speak about some of the issues that some of them faced in terms of immigration and their families, and always to, to celebrate with each other their successes to speak about their challenges, but really as a place for them to build community. And they were doing this oftentimes in Spanish, or Spanglish, rather. And uh, for both of these communities, I think it was having those spaces that were educational, but not necessarily directly linked to the school or the curriculum that gave them their power. 
and for them to be grassroots and be structured along the lines of, of local members uh, was really important. Other after-school programs have a little bit more regimented structure, but I, neither of these two programs really had that kind of nonprofit status where they were held accountable for certain kind of deliverables. Maybe the library more so than the after-school program in, in the high school, but certainly both offered a space for people to be able to speak to one another in Spanish and also uh, some of the other aspects of culture uh, related to Spanish or Latinx culture. So that context sounds uh, different than what some of us might imagine when we think about public schools. It sounds uh, less formal, more social, more conversational than what you might see walking mm-hmm. through classrooms. What can K-12 teachers and administrators learn from that context and bring to that more formal public school context? Oh, that's a great question. And in fact, uh, in the book, I speak about uh, three of the teachers who were involved in the after-school program. And none of these teachers, I should mention, are Latina by background. Uh, These are three white women. And these are three white women who became mentors for these young folks who opened up spaces for them to be able to have these meetings, either in their classrooms after school or accompanying the young folks to the public library where there was also rooms where they met. And uh, what the teachers say oftentimes where they got to see uh, a humanizing element of their students that they oftentimes didn't really get to see. That is, in Kentucky, as in a lot of uh, more conservative states, immigration is a hot issue. It's a hot issue that often dehumanizes the immigrant people themselves and the way they're even referred to. In this context, many of these teachers, or these three teachers in particular, we're able to learn more about some of the more complicated humanizing elements of immigration, really uh, being able to speak to their students in a, in a confident way of trust. Uh, one thing I mentioned, and it's actually the, where the, the word confianza comes from the title of the book. Confianza translates literally to confidence, but it really has more of a, a symbolic meaning, thinking of trust or reciprocal trust or a way we build rapport over time. And really, what I admire about these three teachers at this school is how they develop confianza with these students, even despite not being Spanish speakers and also not really knowing as much about the culture, but listening to their students, being there, being consistent, and being a regular part of their lives outside of a school setting or outside of a traditional classroom setting. And I think that's a place to begin, how we build those trusting relationships with our students outside of educational context, but also still educational in the sense that we become mentors. And we don't necessarily need to speak the same languages. Uh, Communities recognize educators who are consistent, who are regular, and who demonstrate care. And that translates across all languages. And the idea that teachers should focus on their relationships might be something that's that's new for them. Can you say more about what What are the key professional development experiences or materials they might need to engage in that kind of trust building with their students? Yeah, that's great as well. Uh, Well, uh, I should mention also this book, uh, because it is with National Council of Teachers of English, it is really focused on a K-12 audience with practical examples, uh, including various texts that uh, readers could look at related this American Life, for example, the podcast, some great episodes there, some short documentaries, and other types of uh, useful materials that could be, well, used for professional development purposes, but also really to just give uh, uh, teachers an insight to really working with bilingual students. So in general, though, I think uh, the best way to begin is always to listen to the students. 
And you know, in terms of professional development, the best way we can really think about this is thinking of particular case studies, case studies that also look into the student's life, bilingual life outside the academy, how they help their parents oftentimes with English. Um, many of the young folks I have interviewed and studied along with throughout my research, uh, in different contexts, they are translating for their parents and doctor's offices uh, with filling out forms filing taxes, I mean, things that other young people in elementary, middle, and high school aren't doing. And to recognize some of these issues that they face on an everyday basis that are oftentimes related to other issues of discrimination, poverty, and the like, but really to understand holistically what a student's life is like or a student with bilingual and where their communities are. So with that, I think some of the best professional development we can do is really to spend time in some of the local contexts where we teach. That is, find out who are the players in the local context in terms of after-school programs and the various kind of support services that exist to work with schools. There is a danger of, of teachers who may be, uh, well, how would I put this lightly? I guess the best way to say this is that who may go work in a school who would choose not to live in the neighborhood where they work. Uh, I see this oftentimes in New York City, that there would be uh, teachers who may go, let's say, work in the Bronx, but say they would never live in the Bronx. And there's a genuine disconnect there. And to really understand where our students live, we have to spend time. We have to know what is going on. And more importantly, we should be making these connections of other folks who are doing work to support these communities as well. So with that, I think some of the most important professional development we can do is research to find out what resources are available and also putting together a list of folks that we really should be speaking to or having conversations with. Was there something you discovered over the course of engaging in this research that uh, surprised you? You know, I think uh, one of the, the best parts about this book and what I love so much and what really inspired me was uh, doing some creative writing with students, both at the library and with the high school students. Um, I have to back up a little bit and tell somehow the story came to be, but I, I moved to Kentucky in 2012. July 2012, shortly after the Executive Order for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals of DACA. So as an ethnographer in my research, I realized it takes time to build rapport with communities and I need to really start to know people before they trust me to want to really um, trust me enough to do this kind of research to talk to me. So I decided to, uh, to volunteer with some information drives in the community to help with the Spanish speakers. And it was there that I met uh, one of the teachers with his after-school program at the high school student. She invited me to come talk to the students, this Latino group of students. So I said, of course. And uh, the very first meeting, my thought was, I'm going to bring some uh, Latino poetry to them. I want to read a poem with them that uses English and Spanish and speaks on some of these themes that I know are going to come up in terms of the, the issues they're facing with their identity. So I printed up a, a copy of a poem by Eduardo Corral, a great poet from Southern Arizona, one of my good friends. And it's a poem about his father uh, washing dishes and being uh, a Mexican worker as an immigrant. And we read that together. And the poem beautiful mixes Spanish and English. And when the students read this, I could see they were really into it. Some students were even saying, I had never read any poem like this. Can you bring us more? So that was a good sign. Mm -hmm. But also we did a little bit of writing. And with that model text, I asked them to write English and Spanish. And many of them had never done that before. They never even really considered it a possibility. And then when they read these out loud, 
they were hearing their voices represented in their writing, uh, voices oftentimes in Spanish that were only ever really oral, but also being put on the page, just like the poet did. So I started going back uh, every week. They kept asking me to come back and bring more poetry. So I did. And we kept doing more writing. And at a certain point, we had a lot of writing from all the students. And the question was, what are we going to do with all this? And uh, but, well, some students had some really great ideas, and they decided we should make our own book. So we found ways to, to make our own book. I mentioned this in, in Community Literacies of Confianza. We used Amazon Create Space, and we made our own, our own book of the work that the students did. And it was in that book, you know, students workshopping their stories and putting it all together in the very end. I mean, they're incredible. The stories are beautiful, and they tell the story of what it is to be Latino in Kentucky, which is a new place to be a Latino, not like Texas, Arizona, Chicago, Florida. This is a distinctly new identity that's emerging in the South, and they're writing that identity. And they're telling that story. But the best part about this is with some support from the University of Kentucky, we're able to purchase copies and distribute these books to all the libraries in the city, all the libraries in the bluegrass, the high schools, the middle schools, the elementary schools, and in the library itself, the bilingual library, they bought several copies. So the students can see themselves on the shelves, but also more important, the young people growing up can read these stories and really see themselves in Kentucky and the stories of these young folks. And I think that's something that I'm gonna, I've always will carry with me and something that made me especially proud. If readers could have just one takeaway from your book, what do you hope it would be? Well, I guess the, the large takeaway would really be thinking about the dignity of communities and how we, as educators, must be held accountable to always respect the communities our students come from. Um, I, we were held accountable to, to these communities, but more importantly, I think there is a danger where uh, these communities may not have their voices respected or even heard in our classroom. And by that, I think, as I mentioned earlier, the emphasis really falls on educators to really get to know these communities. And sometimes there are those disconnects and even distrust that might be formed from the communities to schools. And that's a, a history that, of course, is not unique, but also one that we should always strive to break. So ultimately, I would say that the, the one takeaway I would ask educators to really think about is what this term confianza is that I, that, I, that I bring up and how trust can be built and how trust is always built around dignity and respect. Well, Steve, we're almost out of time. So I wanted to ask you just a couple of more questions. What are three other books you would recommend to our listeners if they've enjoyed our conversation and they enjoy this book? Um, one book that I really loved reading uh, came out, I guess about a year ago, and it's an edited collection by Django Paris and Samia Lim. And it's titled Culturally Sustaining Pedagogies, Teaching and Learning for Justice in a Changing World. And just the, uh, the framework of thinking of culturally sustaining pedagogies is something similar that I think about in terms of how, uh, despite monolingual ideologies, how communities sustain their bilingualism, how they sustain their home languages. It's a great all-star cast of scholars in that book. Building off that, another great book, again, with uh, Sammy Alim, but also edited with uh, John Rickford and Arneetha the Ball, is titled Racial Linguistics, How Language Shapes Our Ideas About Race. This is a more recent turn, I think, that's happening in linguistic studies and even bilingual education to think about how race and bilingualism and ideologies of race and white supremacy are uh, linked together, and, and especially in ways of that, for example, students of color who may be bilingual but are still assumed to be uh, 
non-native English speakers, or somebody who may even be, let's say, a Mexican-American, but who speaks only English, but will be still be considered to be a foreign student or an English learner. It's really powerful research. And uh, I think probably for this audience, a really great book uh, written by Ophelia Garcia, Susana Ibarra Johnson, and Kate Selter is called The Translanguaging Classroom, Languaging Student Bilingualism for Learning. And this is just a great handbook to think about different ways to consider assessment for bilingual students, assignment planning, and just everything you could ever really imagine in terms of how to actually encourage bilingualism, even in English classrooms. Uh, these are three great books. The first two really set a kind of theoretical foundation, and the third, the translanguaging classroom, really gives a lot of more of the practical nuts and bolts to think about how to encourage bilingualism in all our classes. Finally, can you tell us a little bit about your next project and how our audience can follow your work? Sure. Well, I've kind of had an um, interesting transition that's happened about the last year. Um, I have two books. One, this book uh, we're speaking of today, another book that came out with State University of New York uh, called Brokering Tareas, Brokering Homework, that was focusing on Mexican immigrants in New York City. But literacy is my research. But more recently, I started turning to foodways and food production. And a course I've been teaching first at the University of Kentucky and now at uh, St. John's University called Taco Literacy. And in that uh, class, it's really looking at some of the issues related to migration, bilingualism, race, immigration, I mean, uh, just some of the larger social issues all told through food and the storytelling of food. So the, the next project, I think, will be something similar in terms of thinking how food, foodways are ways of sustaining culture, sustaining language, but also really thinking about some of the larger issues of how food carries culture like languages. And um, in terms of being able to follow me, folks can find me on Instagram, at Stephen Paul Alvarez, or you can also uh, check out at Taco Literacy on Instagram and uh, Twitter and find me that way as well. Steve, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm, I'm, and again, thank you so, um, for taking the time, and I'm honored to be here.